0: We concluded our study last week of the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. Uh, that was, uh, it was on purpose for the most part because I wanted to leave you with the, uh, with the portrait of the suffering Savior. We now complete the book of Isaiah uh, in the time that we have this morning, hopefully, uh, to get through the last uh, 12 chapters in an overview, more of an overview than anything else. Remember that chapters 40 through 66 are considered by most scholars the book of consolation. So there are several things that are going on that obviously you need to be aware of as we go through these. Captivity is coming from the Babylonians. It has not come yet, but Isaiah is prophesying in this this book of predictive prophecy, this this book of consolation. Isaiah is predictively prophesying this is what's coming, this is what you've done to God, this is what God is going to do to you. But after a time, you are going to be released from captivity and you're going to come back to Jerusalem and you're going to rebuild the temple and you're going to rebuild the walls, you're going to rebuild the city. Now as we go through this, this is not only a book of consolation for the people of Isaiah's time, it is a book of consolation for us today. Because the parallels with what Isaiah is speaking about in these last few chapters, chapters 40 through 66, have application not only to the individual Christian, they have application to the church, and they also have application to those people that Isaiah was predictively prophesying about. The coming Messiah. How the Messiah would be treated. What would be the reaction to the Messiah? And so as we look at this, there is a book in and I don't this and this, this is this is just strictly a, a rhetorical question now, but I do want you to start thinking about this, because as we approach the close of this class today, there is a book in the New Testament that parallels the book of Isaiah in its format. It talks about captivity. It talks about freedom from captivity. It talks about a new Jerusalem. So as we go through this today, there are going to be parallels that we're going to see. We're going to see parallels between the Christian life. We're going to see parallels between the things that happen to us as Christians in this world. And we will also see that the reward that we have as Christians and the reward that the church will get someday is coming to us. So let's begin with the 54th chapter. The 54th chapter begins in really, it's really in two sections if you'll look at chapter 54 from verses 1 through 10, and then verses 11 through 17. Now, I'm going to call out only very specific, uh, very specific verses within each of these chapters because of the press of time. So in chapter 54, uh, pay attention to verses 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And verse 7, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercy I will gather you. This concept of forgiveness that Neil talked about this morning. Then verse 9, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. This is God speaking. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. So in this first 10 verses of this 54th chapter, God is talking about the restoration of the house of Israel combined with an exhortation to the house of Israel. While this has no connection, it is a completely separate thought from the previous chapter. There's no close connection between this, but these thoughts have already been taken up in chapters 49 uh, and, and some other chapters. Uh, Israel is assured in these first ten verses of their enlargement. And they are, they are exhorted to take advantage of what God has provided to them, what he will provide to them, and make the most of it. So if we look at chapter 54, beginning in verse, uh, beginning verse 11, oh, and, and verse 10 also uh, is an important one. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Another of the concept of his forgiveness of what they have done. He, is, he has been angry with them, but his anger has not lasted. His forgiveness is ongoing. His forgiveness is as bottomless as, as the seas. So in, verse, in chapter 54, beginning in verse 11, what we see is we see this, we see this return to Jerusalem. We see this remo- renewal of promises from God. We see this increase uh, for the people. God's protection, and then now in verses 11 through 17, we see the glory of the new Jerusalem and the happiness of the inhabitants who live there as they come back home. So beginning at verse 11, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. Does that sound familiar to the Christian, to the New Testament Christian? All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, not, because, not but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who's, who brings forth the instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy." No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, saith the Lord. And so what we have here is we have a promise from God that no instrument will be uh, formed against us. We will, there will be nothing that causes the church not to prosper. In Daniel, God predicts that he will there will be a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And so God's promise here to the people is not only of the new Israel, but also of a new heaven and a new earth. So chapter 55, Isaiah gives the people an exhortation to spirituality and repentance. The people are in such a state now that the house of Israel, the Hebrew people are in such a state that they are not ready for the blessings that the, that the Messiah will bring. They do not sufficiently value this. They do, not sufficiently, they do not sufficiently understand. Each has turned into his own way. Each man did what was right in his own eyes, not by what God told them, but, but what they believed was correct. So here Isaiah admonishes them to be more spiritually minded, especially in verses 1 uh, through 3. In verse 3 he says, incline your ear. And come to me, this is God speaking, here, and your soul shall live, and I will make it an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And so fresh promises are held out in verses 3 through 5 for the obedient. The obedient then in the latter portion of this chapter are exhorted to turn from their evil ways and to repent. But notice that these spiritual gifts in verses 3 and then verses 6 through 9 where he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Again, this concept of forgiveness. And our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so what what God is saying here is you contemplate things in a very earthly framework, and I don't do that. God does not contemplate things in an earthly framework. He's God. God. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. We think, well, I've been done wrong this morning, for instance. I've been done wrong, and I'm not going to forgive. God's not like that. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways because he is God. He is infinite in mercy. He is infinite in forgiveness if you are willing to seek his mercy, if you are willing to seek his forgiveness. and those, So Isaiah is telling the disobedient here, that to turn from their evil ways and to seek the Lord while he is, while he is at hand. And look at uh, verse 11. Verse 11 for me is probably one of the most important verses, and if you're if you write in your Bible or you write in the margins, I would star that verse. That is probably one of the primary verses of supreme importance in the book of Isaiah, where the prophet says, So shall my word, and this is God speaking, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper for the thing for which I sent it. God's word will be sent out, and it will not return to him void. In other words, it will not return to him of no effect. It will have the purpose for which it is intended. If you are one who uh, has the good soil, and this word lands in your heart and grows and prospers, it will return to God the purpose for which it was sent. If, you're, if the soil is hard or if it's rocky, and, that's, and that, does not, that does not cause you to turn to God, God's word does not remain void. God's word will return to him. It will accomplish that for which he has intended. And I think this is an extremely important concept, uh, along with the concept that God's thoughts are not our our thoughts. So, you know, we think about this from the standpoint that, that God does things that we do not understand because we are finite, we are human. Man can scarcely conceive of this deliverance in the Hebrews' time, Man can scarcely believe what Isaiah is saying that he's going to deliver them from this captivity. This is, this is over 150 years into the future. Remember the last time we saw the word, the name Cyrus, he was predicting a man who had not been born for a century and a half. Yet he knew him by name. He called him by name from his mother's womb. And so we cannot understand the deliverance that God brings because his thoughts are not our thoughts. God's word, once it has been pronounced, as it has been in Holy Scripture, is potent to have the effect and the purpose for which it was intended. It is man in his pride that turns away from the word and does not believe the word. God's word will accomplish the purpose for which it was intended. Deliverance from Babylon for the Hebrew nation has been promised. Has our deliverance been promised to us? Has our deliverance from sin been promised to us? It is a promise that God has given us. If we're obedient, if we come to him in faith with a contrite heart and a broken spirit, these are the things that God loves. These are the things that God will forgive. He is infinite in his mercy. So just as the Hebrews are promised deliverance from the Babylonians centuries before it happens, God likewise manifests his blessings to us if we are faithful to him. And we enjoy those, we enjoy those spiritual blessings. Verses 12 and 13 show that. For you shall go out with joy, and you shall be led with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Indeed, of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And so as we go to chapter 56, watching the clock steadily, chapter 56 is an exhortation to obey the law. Now let's think about this. These people are in captivity. These people are going to be in captivity in Babylon. And as we see from the captivity in Daniel and some of the others where captivity is talked about, there is a very, it is a very hard thing for the people of God to maintain what God wants them to do in a sacrificial nature while you're in captivity. Your master, if you're a slave in captivity, your master is not going to give you the Sabbath off. That's just another work day. And so it was impossible during the captivity for the Hebrew people to maintain much of the laws with regard to sacrifice. And so for the most part, sacrifice had ceased during the Babylonian captivity. It was no more. The temple was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar saw to that in 561 B.C. All the ceremonial laws had been suspended. And the command to do no work on the Sabbath day, like I said, well, that's not, that's not going to be happening because your master is not going to say, oh, well, you need Saturday off for your religious observances. Go ahead, take the day off. Oh, I don't think so. Your labors will increase seven days a week. And you will not be given those things because you are, being in, uh, you are a nation of slaves uh, whose master would not allow you to be idle for even a day. So still the spirit of the ordinance was there. And so it, as far as was possible, religious observance, prayer, and meditation was still a part of the people's need to be close to God but apparently this was something they did not do because they were a stiff-necked people. This is now enjoined, this, this, this call to prayer, this call to religious observance, however they could do it, was enjoined on the captive Jews, and the promise was a blessing. Look at verses 6 through 8 in chapter, uh, in chapter 56. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. So he's going to bring the Gentiles. And we know that Christ fulfilled that because his gospel the gospel in the gospel account in matthew is matthew's call to the jews but also to those who had who others who had heard his voice The Gentile people. So for even them, even these sons of the foreigner, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house. Proselytes, those who had come to the Jewish religion, those who had been converted out of idolatry, even those he would bring to the holy mountain to make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all nations. So there is a Messiah who's coming. He is not just for the Jews. He is for all those who will hear the word of the Lord and will respond to it. The Lord God, verse 8, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, yet I will gather to them others besides those who are gathered to him. And so here we see the predictive prophecy that the coming Messiah will bring all unto Him. Everyone who is willing, who everyone who is able, who everyone who believes uh, will come to Him. Proselytes, eunuchs, all might uh, have participation in this new in this new kingdom. And then verses nine through twelve. This is a warning to the wicked. Notice that he gives observances of the law to the people in the first half of this chapter, the last half of this chapter, he talks about warnings to those who are wicked. And he says, beginning in verse 9, all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts of the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain, for his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. And so this sudden change of style between the first eight verses and the last few verses of the, of the chapter introduce an entirely new prophecy. The eye of the prophet goes to this period of exile which he has so long been predicting, which is, he has so long been contemplating, um, he brings it to his own day. In this pre-exile period before they go, he sees them as being misled by these teachers. Here, you know, you, you, you watchmen, the teachers, your watchmen are blind. Um, he, the, the teachers in verses 10 through 12, uh, given to idolatry up in uh, verses 3 through 9, offering themselves as prey to the enemy in verse 9, And so, what we see here is we see this warning to these blind guides of Israel, those who uh, who, those who will lead the lead the people uh, astray. Um, They are, as he says, they are blind watchmen, ignorant, dumb dogs, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. And so, chapter fifty-seven, he talks about this concept that the Hebrews had in their mind because of things that were told to them in Exodus in 1 Kings, Psalms, Proverbs, that under the mosaical dispensation, they were given to expect long life. And we see that throughout the early Bible record. We see people of extraordinarily long life. And so there is, a, there is a, an expectation that this will continue. But there were exceptions to the rule. We remember Ahab and Jezebel, they slaughtered the prophets. They cut them, they, they cut them down at a very early age. And so probably in 2 Kings when Manasseh, after Hezekiah, the current king of this period of prophecy, after he dies, Manasseh comes to the throne. And all of the good that Hezekiah had done by tearing down the, by tearing down the idolatrous temples, by doing all the things that he had done to restore worship to God and a faithful people to God, are all undone by Manasseh. Uh, Manasseh, did, uh, Manasseh did more harm, and you can read about him in 2 Kings 24, Uh, but there are times in the Bible where we read of the very righteous being taken from a natural death before they grow old. Look at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15, uh, and Ecclesiastes 8, verse 14. So Isaiah is speaking at this time, there, there have been these type of removals, and he notes that, as partly a rebuke to those who have passed over this phenomenon, but using it as a way to justify God's ways uh, that they are perplexed by. You know, maybe he is cutting our lives short. But then in verses 3 through 14, and that's really just the first couple verses there where uh, he talks about these people being taken away. The remainder of, uh, of the chapter in verses 3 through 14, um, he talks to the people about idols. Uh, notice he begins with, But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot, whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not the children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? And so this time is roughly the time when Manasseh is taking over and idolatry is coming back into its own. And so if we look at verses 10 through 13 in this chapter particularly, um, we, talk, we, we, we see God talking in, uh, to these people uh, about their idolatry. And so in verse 10 he says, you are wearied in the length of your way, yet you do not say, there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you are not grieved. And of whom have you been made afraid or feared, that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? And so God is saying, you've turned to these idols, you don't fear me anymore, there's no fear in your heart. And you've turned back to these idolatrous ways. But at the end of this chapter, it's very interesting that he talks about in the last few verses, 15 through 21, he talks about salvation. There's a promise in these last few verses of salvation for a specific group of people. And if we look at that, if we look at 17 through 21, for the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry, God speaking. And struck him, I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, and I will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off and to, whom he, to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But now notice what he says. He, he, he will heal the humble, the humble and penitent man. But he preserves the last two verses for the threat against the wicked. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And so. God promises salvation to those who are humble, those who are penitent, those who return to him, that faithful remnant who he'll talk about here in just a, in just a few minutes in another chapter. But as we move to fifty-eight, chapter 58, um, he's looking at specifically uh, these instructions while the whole law is still in force, even though the people are in captivity, and the people make an outward show, and here we can compare this today, People make an outward show of worshiping God, but they complain when they're not properly rewarded. When things happen to them, they say, well, wait a minute, I go to church every Sunday. Why do these things happen to me? And so while they make an outward show of religiosity, they complain when they're not properly rewarded for their religiousness. And God tears this mask away in in these uh, first 12 verses of chapter 58. He tears the mask away and shows that there is a difference between your pretense of worship... And true worship. So let's look at verses five, uh, 5 through 12 there. It is a fast that I have chosen. A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? So they're putting on the pretense of worship. They're coming to worship God as God has commanded them, but their minds are somewhere else. Does this sound familiar? Who comes to church and doesn't bring the right attitude? Who comes to church without that worshipful spirit, that right-mindedness that they need to bring? And so he says, Is this not a fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? It is not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover them and not hide yourselves from their own flesh." Then your light shall break forth like the morning. And so several things here. In in verse 7, he talks about the fact that if you give, in the New Testament, Christ said if you give a cup of water, a cup of cold water in my name, he's talking about the same thing here. You don't take in people who are hungry. You don't feed those who are, you don't, you don't take in the poor. You cast them out. You see them naked and you, and you, and you don't cover them. You don't hide yourself from your own flesh. And then this light that breaks forward in the morning, like healing, shall bring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here am I. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness. There's light in doing these things, in, in being this obedient servant of God's, and your darkness shall be as noonday. Verse 11 says, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. Strengthen your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. These, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach. Look at the, look at the the rebuilding of the temple. Look at the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. The repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath day a delight, the holy day of the Lord, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. If you don't do these things, he says in verse 14, you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And so, God requires that this formalism be set aside, these, these, these things with regard to fasting uh, take place, and that a strict observance to worship take place, just as there is a strict adherence to worship for us today in the church, so there was for the children of Israel in this time. So chapter 59, and we just may make it. Look at this chapter as a, as a general rebuke of the world, of the church, of yourself um, for, mat, for its manifold for its manifold sin, and so he asks at the outset of this in verse one through four, "Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor are his ears or nor are his ears heavy that he cannot hear." So God's hand is not shortened; you can't use that as an excuse. You can't say he doesn't hear me. Why is his hand not shortened? Why does he not hear you? Why does he not help you? Verse 2, but your iniquities, your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. If you are in a state where God's people are in a state of transgression in this house of Jacob in Isaiah's time, had sinned grievously against the Lord. This is a scathing denunciation. It's not God who let you down. It's you. You've let God down. Your sins have separated from God. God hasn't moved. God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. It's you. And your sin, who separated you from, for your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongues have muttered. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice. No one pleads for truth. They trust in empty words, and they speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. I couldn't help but think about verse four in, in, in light of this week's activities in the world. Lies have been told. No one pleads for truth. They're empty words. They're lies. They conceive evil and they bring forth iniquity. And so as we go down through here and look at this, in verses 7 and 8, there is a rejoinder again to the people. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. What do we know about crooked paths from the Old Testament? What is the path that leads to righteousness? It's narrow and it's what? It's straight. They've made crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. So your sins and iniquities have separated you from God. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. So, what is the remedy? What is the remedy? In verses 9 through 15, Isaiah tells them what the remedy is. Justice is far from me. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we see only blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind. And so in verses 9 through 15, Isaiah confesses Israel's sin before God. He's anxious to bring the people back into a saved state with God. And so he confesses, he makes humble confession in their name, joining himself as part of this because he knows he is sinful. And then finally, verses 15 through 21 in this chapter, with him confessing to God the things that that they have done, there is in verses 15 through 21 a promise of deliverance. Christians today are beset with evil. We are beset with evil primarily from outside these doors. We are beset with evil outside. When we go out into the world, we are beset by evil. But Christians today are beset by evil from within also. There are those in the church of Christ today that want to change the worship, that want to change the way God has laid down the way that we should worship him in spirit and truth. So we are beset from evil like the children of Israel were from without and from within. The children of Israel were beset with evil from an ungodly group of people who will hold them captive. And they were also held captive or or, uh, under the influence of an oppression from even their own brethren, just as we are today. But God promises them and us deliverance from both. And for the children of Israel... The deliverance will be with the coming Messiah. Our deliverance will be when the new Jerusalem comes. And so chapter 60, this is uh, a song of triumph. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time here, uh, but it's 22 verses. It's divided up into uh, five stanzas. And the first stanza is is verses 1 through 4, and it talks about light. Verses 5 through 9 talks about the increase of the people that they will gain. Uh, Verses 10 through 14, again, there is more to talk about with increase. And 15 through 18, promises to come uh, in this future glory uh, of Israel. Verses 19 through 22 are, are very curious to me from the standpoint that they point to something that we all know and have thought about. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. The sun shall no longer go down, nor shall the moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be ended. And your people shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. And so we're beginning to see this talking, this discussion about the new Jerusalem that they will go back to. The new Jerusalem that they will build, they will restore the streets, they will rebuild the gates, they will rebuild the temple. And for the Christian today, when we're loosed from our captivity of sin, we have a new Jerusalem also that we go to. So the parallels between Isaiah and especially the Book of Revelation are, are uncanny in their in their in their parallelism. And uh you you really you know, Revelation twenty one, Revelation twenty two, um, you know, those are those are really the ones that talk about that God is all the light, just as He is here. He is all the light for the returning children of, of Israel when they return from captivity, but he is also all the light for us in uh in the New Jerusalem in heaven. So chapter sixty one. I'm bound determined to make that, but I'm Getting short on time. Uh, chapter 61 is uh, concerning the mission of the servant of the Lord. Here we have more messianic prophecy, uh, and I'll leave that to you to read. I'm not going to do too much with that. Uh, just to say that uh, verses 1 through 3 uh, talk about the spirit of God is upon me. Chapter 61, verse 1. Uh, has this prophecy been fulfilled? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are, inbound, uh, who are, uh, who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Has that prophecy been fulfilled? Yes. yes. Luke, the fourth chapter, verse 21, Jesus himself says, Today this prophecy has been fulfilled. And so this is the mission, if you will, the mission statement of the servant of the Lord. And so God has come in human form to bring salvation to everyone. So God's purpose in verses 4 through 9, uh, God has a purpose in dealing with the children of Israel. And you can read verses 4 through 9 to uh, elicit that purpose, that they shall rebuild the old ruins, verse 4. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolation of many generations. They're going to rebuild the city. So in verses 10 and 11, the last two verses of that chapter, we find that Jerusalem accepts the promises, and they will inherit the glories uh, of Jehovah. And here Christ is still speaking in the form of the, uh, the pre-incarnate one who shall come. Chapter 62, a very short 12-verse chapter uh, where he talks again, the, 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 servant, uh, the servant of the Lord, a continuation from chapter 61. Um, he continues to make these uh, gracious promises uh, that, uh, that, there will be, uh, that they will be promised righteousness, they will be promised glory, they will be promised a new name, And a time of peace and prosperity, deliverance from Babylon, and triumphant establishment of the mountain of Zion under God's protection. And if you look at verses 1 in chapter 62, verses 1, verses 11, and verse 12, there is direct application there to the church today. Uh, Chapter 63, uh, this is continuing a, a, a discussion that Isaiah was having in the 34th chapter of Isaiah when he talked about Edom. And he talks about uh, the great slaughter in this chapter that will, that will come. Um, there are some really uh, potent verses in here, especially in verses 1 through 6. Um, Zion's, For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace uh, with the mouth of the Lord, crown of glory. This may not be... Oh, gosh, let's see, where is that at? Uh, hmm, this is not where... I'm, so, uh, anyway, Isaiah... He's already announced a great slaughter among the Edomites. Um, he refers uh, to Jehovah as a warrior. I'm having a hard time finding. Oh, that's because I'm in chapter 62, so that would be that would help. All right. So in chapter 63, verse one, uh, notice there there is one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Verse two. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the winepress. Remember when these people would make uh, grape juice, they would have to trod in the winepresses and the red would get onto their clothing as they did this. But this is not red with wine that he's talking about. This is red with what? This is red with blood. Blood. Because he says in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Directly reading from the book of Revelation, where Christ is seen as the one on the, is one on the horse whose garments are, his garments are pure white, but he has trodden, the, God says, I have trodden the winepress of my anger. And so to a disobedient world, God's day of vengeance. To a disobedient world in this time, deliverance from their captors. In our time, deliverance from sin. God's vengeance will have a day, is what he's saying. Okay? And so uh, in verses 7 through 14, uh, Isaiah praises God for his mercies, uh, for his thanksgiving. Uh, Isaiah gives thanksgiving praised for his God is praised for his loving kindness, his compassion, and his sympathy for the people in verses seven um, through nine the fifteenth through the nineteenth verse of, of uh, chapter sixty three is a prayer for, for deliverance from sin and suffering, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God again are all brought to, uh, are brought to bear here. Thanksgiving to God, uh, confession to God, uh, approaching God in prayer. And beseeching God uh, to look down on them. In fact, beginning in the next chapter, in chapter 64, uh, you will see a request for something that is very seldom seen in Holy Writ. The people ask for a theophany. The people ask for a theophany. Job asked for a theophany, he asked to talk to God personally. He wanted God to manifest himself and talk with him. And here the people in chapter 64 ask, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountain might shake at your presence. And so here, not content with just praying to God, not content with just praying to him, they want him to now create a theophany or a manifestation of the divine presence that they had experienced in times of old and that would then strike terror into the heart of their captors. And so with profound humility, they confess their grievances. They beseech God as their father and their maker to have pity on them, reminding them of the desolate conditions that now exist currently in Jerusalem and to no longer refrain himself in verses 5 through 12. Okay? So 65, by George, I'm going to make it. Chapter 65. God has an answer from chapter 64, they pray, they pray for His deliverance. In chapter 65, God has an answer. He has an answer for the exile's prayer. In verses one through seven, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found for those I was found for though, by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that had not called me by name. I've stretched out my hands all the day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Sound familiar? It's not man with, who walks to direct his own steps. We are a people who walk in our own ways. There's a way that is not good. And we walk according to our own thoughts. And we are a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in their gardens and burn incense on the altars of brick. See, they're doing the sacrifice, but they're doing it at other places. They're doing it where it's convenient for them. Well, I don't have time to go to church. I'm going to just burn this. I'm just going to offer this. I'm not going to the Sabbath ceremonies. I'm just going to offer this in my garden. Hopefully that's good enough. Because, you know, God is everywhere, and he'll see me doing this. Well, this is not pleasing to God. A people who provoke me with their anger, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh, and the broth of abominable things are in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I'm holier than you. God says, this is smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. And he says, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but I will repay. I will repay every bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your father together who have burned incense in the mountains and blasphemed me in the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work. As a new wine is found in a cluster and one says, do not destroy it for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. So there in verse 5, he's talking about, again, he's making a comparison to this vineyard. He's making a comparison to this garden. So verses 1 through 7 Israel is suffering as a just outcome for their sins. You suffer because of your sin. As they did in Isaiah's time, so we do today. But then in verses 8 through 10, notice he promises something to the remnant. He promises in this book of consolation that they, this remnant who continue to seek and serve God, will be spared. And this simile in man's treatment to their own vineyards, which is verse eight that I just read, um, this is for the remnant, verses eight through ten. And so, as he completes the chapter in verses eleven through sixteen, and uh, then the final portion of the chapter, he mixes threats with promises. He he talks about uh, he talks about threats and promises. And so, um, in verse seventeen through twenty-five. And I want to make a a, a point of this because our time is running short, but this is really important. Chapter 65, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Now, I just want you to listen to this, and you tell me what you think. All right, you tell me. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered to come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing And her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. And joy in my people. And the voice of weeping. Shall no longer be heard in her. Nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there. Live but a few days. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. But the sinner being 100 years old. Shall be accursed. They shall build houses. Inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards. And eat their fruit. They shall not build. And another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat, for as in the days of the tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So he promises them a place. He promises them a new heaven and a new earth where there is no weeping, where there is no sadness, where there is only total joy, where there is plenty for everyone. And so I think, as you can see, as we close out with the 66th chapter, that he is promising them, as he promises the church, that the ungodly will be exiled. The ungodly have a place. The godly will be encouraged and they will be rewarded. Look at chapter 66, verses 1 through 4. That's the ungodly being rebuked. In verses 5 through 14, the godly shall be encouraged. And in verses 15 through 18, as promised, God will take vengeance. In those 15, 16, 17, in those four verses, God will take vengeance on his enemy. A single outpouring of his vengeance upon his Enemies precedes the last portion of this, which is 19 through 24, and if you'll indulge me for just two minutes, 16 through 24, for by fire, chapter 66, verses 16, I'm sorry, verses 19, sorry, verses 19 through 24, I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations. Going on down, uh, they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they, shall all, then they shall bring all of their brethren for an offering to the Lord out of, the, out of all the nations, on the horses and chariots and litters, on mules, on camels, to my holy mountain, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering to a, in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. For I shall also make some of them priests and Levites... Verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another all flesh shall come to worship before me. So in verses 19 through 24, he completes the, he completes the thought that the final condition of the church of the redeemed not only on earth but the redeemed in heaven in the new Jerusalem Uh, will come to pass. For all those who dwell, the awful destruction of the wicked is pronounced, their their eternal sufferings, so shall be those who don't remember the name of God, those who don't uh, forgive or who are not obedient to God. So I will submit to you that I think that the book of Isaiah is an Old Testament because of the apocryphal language, and we talked about apocryphal language a lot in this book, I think that the apocryphal language in this book makes a very clear comparison to the Book of Revelation for the Christian, for the New Testament. There are so many parallels between captivity and ransom, between captivity and uh, between punishment for the wicked and the, the remaining remnant that the church is today. Uh, I think that Isaiah stands in its 66 chapters, one for each chapter of the, of the of Holy Writ. I don't think that's a I don't think that's a I don't think that's a mistake on God's part or just happenstance. Sixty-six chapters, sixty-six books in the, in, in the Bible. And these promises were there for the children of Israel, and those, those promises are surely remaining there for us today, if we are obedient, if we remain a part of that holy uh, remnant that remains in the world today. So uh, next week we'll start a new class. Thank you all very much for putting up with me for two whole semesters or whatever it's been for studying Isaiah. I know it's been a long study, but I appreciate all of your comments, and thank you very much, and good Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday.